Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Colossians chapter 3. That was a song that gave thanks unto God for the trials as much as for the the times of happiness, the times of perhaps sorrow and difficulty. Saying, thank you God for those elements for they are conforming me to your image. That is much of what we talked about last week, was it not? The reality that thanksgiving, as we defined it, is purposed, a purposed lifestyle of giving glory to whom glory is due, of giving credit to whom credit is due. That consistency and determination whereby we are thanking God for what He has done for us and for all He has given to us, that joy that transcends simply our circumstances. We'll begin there this morning as we do so. If you need an outline, please raise your hand and Evan will come around and be sure to get you one of those in order that uh, you can follow along better in the service. So last week we defined Thanksgiving. What is Thanksgiving? We defined Thanksgiving as a determined, consistent giving glory to God. But you know, sometimes defining something doesn't help us very much to live it or to even see the necessity of it. I remember when I was in high school and to a lesser extent junior high, Math was not very much fun to me. I would memorize these formulas. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Okay, great. I'm glad I know that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's really going to help me out here. And, and, and th- that, that, that theme that runs throughout math. How is this going to help me in real life, right? I don't know if I've ever been in a, cl- in a math class when I was in junior high or high school where I didn't hear someone say, how is this stuff ever going to help me in real life? And so learning the definition of something or learning what something is, learning, setting down expectations or rules or, or, or formulas doesn't always help us apply things to our lives. But I'll never forget, it was my junior year in high school and I started calculus and I started physics. And I will never forget when we got into calculus and physics and we were learning the same concepts, how math just came alive to me. We're shooting balls out of cannons in physics. And as we're doing so, we're using derivatives and integrals to find the area under that curve. And we're learning about coefficients of friction and how that impacts movement. And, you know, one train's coming this way, one train's coming this way, there's a fly in the middle, when's he going to get smashed type stuff. And when when math came alive to me was when I realized there's something to this. And I still actually remember in calculus one particular problem. A person had a backyard and he wanted to know how much sod to buy for his backyard. Well, he could step out the entire thing bit by bit or he could plot a curve and take the area under a curve and and that would give him the ability to know exactly how much grass he needed by square feet without having to do any stepping out of the grass. And, and, and how wonderful it was to me to think, wow, math makes sense when it was applied. And so last week we learned what is Thanksgiving. What is Thanksgiving? Well, it's a determination. It's a lifestyle. It's giving credit where credit is due. Thanksgiving is supposed to transcend our circumstances, right? 
Regardless of the circumstances, we can be thankful because indeed Jesus Christ did die on the cross. Indeed, He is coming again. Indeed, we have things to look forward to. Indeed, the trials of this life are temporal. Indeed, the sufferings of this life are nothing to be compared with the glory that is to follow. Indeed, all of these things are true, therefore we should be thankful. But let's put some meat to it today. Where are we commanded to be thankful? Is it really that important? Pastor, is thankfulness really that important? After all, I can know Jesus Christ is God. I can know that He died on the cross and that He rose again. I can be kind to people. I can do what I need to do. I can come and sit and sing and read and memorize and do all of that stuff that we do at this church and leave and, you know what, not be very thankful. So let's talk today about the command to be thankful. Let's talk today about where it is that this command is found and the company that this command keeps. And we might just find that it's quite a bit more important than we thought. Two observations this morning concerning the biblical command unto thanksgiving. We'll begin in Colossians chapter 3. I'll be reading numerous scriptures this morning. Uh, we may not necessarily have time for you to turn to them, but uh, we'll be, we'll be kind of going a few different places this morning. But Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 is where we find ourselves this morning. Let's go ahead and read the whole passage, and then we'll talk through it together. Beginning in verse 12. Put on, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, Humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. In verses 12 through 16, the first observation I'd like you to see this morning is the companion's of thankfulness. The companions of thankfulness. The passage we are focusing in today begins with a therefore. Put on therefore. And as the old adage goes, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to stop and figure out what it's there for. A therefore is a, is a linking. It's a conjunction. It links that which was to that which is. It's a concluding thought. And so when you see a therefore, always find out what it's there for. Now, if we take a look at the scope of the book of Colossians, it follows a similar pattern to what Paul did in Romans, to what he does in Ephesians. We see it in numerous epistles, and the, the pattern is this. Paul begins by giving a theological framework. And the first part of his book, maybe the first half of his book, is in Ephesians and Colossians. In Romans, it's the first, give or take, 40% of the book, is a doctrinal teaching that the church must not lose. And then, after he's finished with this heavily doctrinal portion of Scripture, he transitions to a heavily practical portion of Scripture, where he is taking the doctrine that has been taught as the foundation of his lesson, and he's building upon that doctrine the foundational necessities of living it out in our lives. 
And so we see in Romans chapters 1 through 5, there's the doctrine of salvation. And then we see in Romans chapters 6 through 8, some expectations or warnings about that doctrine. And then in 9 through 11, we see the um, reality of Israel and how Israel um, falls into the, the, the teaching of the doctrine of salvation. And then in chapter 12, we, we come back to that heavily practical, how to live out this doctrine of salvation in your life. We see in Ephesians, where chapters 1 through 3 are the reality of what you have in Jesus Christ, the reality of your salvation, the positional inheritance that you have in Him. And then as it gets into Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, it says, therefore walk worthy of the vocation. Do these things because of what you know about God. And it's the same thing in Colossians. Chapters 1 and 2 is, this is God. This is Jesus Christ. This is what He's done. This is the reality of the doctrine of Christ. Chapters 3 and 4 are, okay now, folks, you know it, you know who God is, you know what He's done, now live it. Let me give you the implications of what God has done to you. And so, since we're in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, you understand that we're in that practical section. We're in that area where we are practicing living out that which we know about God. Now, we haven't taught Colossians chapters 1 and 2, but it's similar to what we learned when we went through Ephesians um, several months ago, and um, we will recognize that this morning. Now, as we step into Colossians chapter 3, there is also a division in this chapter. In verses 1 through 4 of this immediate context in in Colossians 3, uh, Paul makes an appeal to Christians to live their lives for heaven and not for this earth, and they should be motivated by the hope of eternal rewards. It's not necessarily a selfish motivation, but it's the reality that we live in, that we are we are living toward the reality of eternal rewards. Look at verse 1. If you then be risen with Christ, which was the doctrine he was teaching, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And so he says, if, if this is the reality of who you are, you're, you're a heavenly citizen, your position is in heaven, you're awaiting that, you're excited about that, you are risen with Christ, you will rise with Him bodily one day, you will be with Him forever, so live it. Now, in verses 5 through 11, there are negative warnings. Because you're supposed to live not for this life, but for the life that is to come, these are things you need to get rid of. And Paul lists these negative warnings, things that a Christian ought to put off. Now, notice, Paul is instructing Christians on what to put off. These things don't necessarily all fall away the moment you get saved. The moment you get saved, you don't become the perfect Christian. You don't become sinless perfection. As a matter of fact, we're learning in 1 John on Tuesday nights, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and, and His Word is not in us. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. And so we are still sinners. We have a responsibility to put some things off. And look at verse 5. It says, Mortify therefore. Allow these things to die. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of, of disobedience. In the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these. 
anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So mortify the things that were indicative of your your unbelieving life and then put off these things that would still plague you, the wrath and the anger and the blasphemy and the filthy communication. Don't lie one to another, verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And so we're told to put some things off. Now our text this morning begins with the opposite. In verses 12 through 17, we're looking at things that he has commanded us, that the Holy Spirit, that God through the Holy Spirit's inspiration and through the pen of Paul is commanding us to put on, to replace. Instead of having anger and wrath and blasphemy and malice and all of these things, let's replace them with something. And that's what we read this morning. And we're going to call these things, since we're focusing on Thanksgiving this morning, we're going to call these things the companions of thanksgiving. The company that thanksgiving keeps. Verse 12, Paul says, put on. In the Greek, this is in a command form. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Put these things on. Put that stuff off. Put this things on. And notice why we're supposed to put these things on. He says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. So because we are the elect of God, now, let's be careful here, not elect unto salvation, elect unto blessing. The church is elected by God unto the heavenly blessings, unto adoption of sons. These are the promises that God has made to those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And so because we are one of these that is looking forward to the blessings the spiritual blessings in heavenly places that come to those who put their faith in Christ, we are commanded to put these things on, to make them indicative of our very lives. And look at the virtues together with me this morning. The first one that we see in verse 12, bowels of mercies. Mercies is literally the word pity. It's only found five times in the entire New Testament, this word. Two of those times... It's describing the very character of God. That God is pitiful. He, he has pity towards us. He is merciful toward us. Now, we think of this idea of mercy and it says bowels of mercy. Now, when we think of bowels, that's not a word that uh, comes with very pretty pictures for us in this day and age in our culture. But in Hebrew culture, the idea of one's bowels, the idea of, of the very core of, it was the idea of the very core of one's being, his belly, his gut. Have you ever been really upset and you just feel like there's a rock in your belly? Or you have been at the doctor, I was, I was at the doctor um, when I started having indigestion uh, in January. I went to the doctor because my heart was palpitating and those sorts of things and he did an EKG on me. And let me tell you what happened. It's, it's, it's kind of nerve-wracking what happened. The nurse comes in, she puts all the probes in place and she runs the machine and she kind of looks at me. The test finishes. She hits the button again. Runs it again. Looks at me. Walks out. Comes back in, adjusts all the probes. Hits the button again. Looks at me. Walks out. Walks in with her nurse's manual on where to put the probes. 
looking at the manual, checking the probe. She's like, well, you're not fat. I can see your ribs. I, I know these are in the right place. She runs it again, looks at me, tears them all off, says, I've got to go talk to the doctor. Comes back, the doctor checks her work, runs it again. All of this goes, goes on. And the doctor comes in and says, well, here's the thing. Your EKG came back normal as far as the, the, all of the impulses and everything are concerned. The heart is healthy, but I'm getting the pulses on the wrong side of your heart. He said, that's indicative of a condition where your heart is reversed in your chest. And that means that the, the strong aortic valve that's supposed to take all the pressure of the pumps is on the wrong side, which means uh, the weak side of your heart is the one that's getting all the pressure, and that could be a real problem. I need to send you to an x-ray to see if this is the deal. And of course, the x-ray place is upstairs, and the temperature is at negative 12 degrees, so I'm shivering, and when you're nervous, you're already shivering a bit more anyway, uh, because you don't know what to expect. And I, you know, Sarah, I'm, I'm getting an x-ray, they tell me I'm dying, I don't know, you know, you're sitting there in the waiting room, who knows what's going to happen. Not, not, not a pleasant experience, and I tell you, you can kind of feel it down in your gut. It's like, ah, uh, you don't know what to expect. The fear of the unknown. I'm sitting there quoting verses about, you know, how how it's 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 a blessing to be with the Lord and and all of this stuff. And it's just, but you feel it in your gut. And I'm like, well, we need to we need to shore up our plans for the girls and need to make sure my wife knows all the passwords for the bank accounts and um, all of this stuff. Well, we get in there. They take the x-ray. We get back down to the doctor. I'll tell you how it ends in a little bit. I'm alive, so you know how that part ends. That's the idea. Bowels of mercies. That from the very core of your being, be merciful. Be pitiful. Not pitiful in the way of, hey, you're a really pitiful person, but have pity. Full of pity. Full of mercy. Deep-rooted, genuine care. And it's going to come out in your life if you have it. Bowels of mercy. Kindness is the next one we see. Kindness. This is the same word found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, to describe the fruit of the Spirit called gentleness. The exact same Greek word. Gentleness. Kindness. Goodness towards others that transcends what regular human nature would expect. My wife, when we were down in Florida, stopped. She stopped to help uh, somebody that was on the side of the road one time. I wasn't there at that time, but she stopped and helped uh, this young lady change her tire, and as my wife was leaving, the lady looked at her and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, well, yes, I am. She said, I could tell. That's that idea of, of a kindness that transcends just the human nature of kindness and it becomes that ex exhibition of the fruit of the Spirit. Humbleness of mind, a word that carries with it genuine humility, not just humility in action. Have you ever noticed that proud people are really good at acting humble? It's that humility of mind. Not just that you're acting humble, but that you are humble. Meekness is the next one on the list. That idea of strength under control. Directed strength. Your strength is not working toward uh, improper means or improper ends. It's working toward proper Godly ends. You take the strength and the ability that you have, you restrain it, you contain it, you direct it, and you do things for God. Long-suffering. The command is further explained in the next two phrases. It's all one phrase. Long-suffering, and then verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. That's what it means to be long-suffering. We forbear 
In other words, we bear along when that person is just really being troublesome, you forbear them. And you suffer them. You suffer long and you forgive them. They don't know what they've done to you. They have, they, they have no clue the kinds of things that their words, their cutting words, little phrase here and there have done to you. But you know what? You're going to forbear. You're going to forgive. If any man have a quarrel against any, he says in verse 13, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, here's the comparison. With the same degree that Christ forgave you, you forgive them. How much has Christ forgiven you? When did Christ forgive you? Do you know, according to 1 John 2, 2, Jesus Christ is the atonement, the propitiation for the sins of the entire world? you know that the wrath of God upon all mankind was satisfied the day Jesus Christ died on the cross? Now, that forgiveness and heaven is not applied to all men. It's applied to those who believe on Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone. But his blood was sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world. When Peter asked Jesus Christ, how many times should I forgive a brother? Seven times. Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. An innumerable number of times. Why? Because look at how much God has forgiven you. Scriptures tell us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ didn't wait for you to ask for forgiveness to forgive you. That is the forgiveness that we're called to have here. Matthew 6.15 warns about lack of forgiveness. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. James 2.13, James is really in many ways a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. James 2.13, he said this, For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. The call to forgive and to forbear is a strong one. But notice it's not the strongest here because in verse 14 Paul says, Above all things, Above all these things, do something else. Put on charity, unfeigned love, which is the bond of perfectness. Charity. The definition of charity is found in 1 Corinthians 13. I know many of you have memorized 1 Corinthians 13. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do it because the very definition of what godly love is is rooted in 1 Corinthians 13. Charity goes beyond simple lip service. It's genuine, deep, purposeful love one for another. Paul describes this love in a way. He calls it the bond of perfectness. The idea of being perfect in Scripture is not being sinless. As we've memorized in our important definitions, the idea of being perfect in Scripture is being um, complete. Having all that is necessary to its nature and kind. Finished. And so, it's the idea of being a finished, completed, well-rounded Christian, of having all those things in place to please God. And that doesn't mean sinless perfection. 1 John 1 tells us about that. And so, the Scriptures tell us that this charity is, above all, the bond of perfectness. Think about the Christian life as a puzzle pieces. Have you ever known somebody that has certain parts of the Christian life done really well, but they kind of miss other parts? And I'm not asking you to be judgmental here, but you know, a person is very kind and very loving, but they have a pride issue. 
Or a person is very humble and meek, but you know what? Sometimes they can have a real temper issue, an anger problem. And we all are at places in our lives where we're working on things, and as we figure out something out by grace, you know, God has helps us along in our Christian life. It's a journey. The puzzle pieces start to fit in place. So by God's grace, with each lesson learned, we're becoming a little bit more like Christ, a little bit more like what He would have us to be. When my mom and, well, when, when I was growing up, my mom liked to do those Thomas Kincaid puzzles. She, she's a big fan of Thomas Kincaid, and, and she would love to do those puzzles. And they were pretty big, there were a lot of pieces to them, and they were tough. When, when, when you have certain types of puzzles, they're just kind of tough. And my mom would like to, when she finished a puzzle, you know, put the, put it on a cardboard, flip it over, and put glue on it. And that glue would keep the puzzle together so that when I was running through the house with my army men or with my Star Wars pieces or whatever it was that week and I was running through the house and I hit that, you know, that piece of cardboard that the puzzle was on, pieces wouldn't fly everywhere and we'd have to redo the puzzle again. I kind of think of charity that way as it's described in Colossians chapter 3. That charity is the bond of perfectness. That as we're putting together the faith and the long-suffering and all of these elements, the kindness and the meekness, all of these elements, all of those fruits of the Spirit that are beginning to manifest themselves in our lives, it's love that binds it all together. It's love that keeps it firm. It's love that's going to secure it for us. It's the bond of the completed Christian. Now, in verse 15 it says, and, so continuing, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, allow it to do so, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. That's what we're talking about this morning. You may not have figured that out yet from the message. It's been kind of, um, hasn't, we haven't gotten there yet, but that's what we're talking about. Thankfulness. And be ye thankful. Let me trace the string of commands so far. Merciful. Kind. Humble. Meek. Forgiving. Loving. Peaceful. And then, thankful. We are to live a life defined by love, governed by peace, and characterized by thankfulness. Let me say that again. We are to live a life defined by love, governed by peace, and characterized by thankfulness. Verse 16 speaks of one other command. To allow the word of God to dwell richly in us. To manifest itself through grateful praise one to another in song. Thank the Lord for the opportunity we've had already to thank the Lord, to sing to the Lord, to manifest the Word of God dwelling in us richly through singing one to another. Now as we consider this list of virtues, think of thankfulness in the midst of this list. Thankfulness has some pretty officious company, doesn't it? You think of the big things in the Christian life. Things like mercy and love, forbearing one another, long-suffering. I don't know if thankfulness would necessarily hit that list if we're just off-the-cuff thinking of it. But when we look at this list, we recognize it should. Thankfulness is a part of a list that makes a comprehensive Christian. And if you don't have thankfulness, you're missing something from your life, from your Christian Life. Now, the implication is that thankfulness is necessary. Let's briefly highlight some other passages concerning thankfulness this morning. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 say this, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. As opposed to all of these negative things that could be found in your life, look, don't do those. Give thanks. Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. It would have been back in the doctrinal section of the Colossians. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So, the expectation is that we would be rooted, built up in Christ, be established firm in the faith, and abound in thanksgiving. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer. Watch in the same with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an integral part of prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Think about your week this week. Did some tough things happen this week? Did anything happen that was not pleasant? Can you give thanks in it anyway? In everything, give thanks. Why? Why should I do that? Because it's a will of God concerning you. Give thanks. The Thessalonian church was a church of persecution. Paul writes to this church in persecution and he says, guess what church? Rejoice evermore in everything. Give thanks because this is God's will. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So praise is defined as the fruit of our giving thanks. Praise to God happens when we give thanks. Giving thanks is not the inherent praise to God. The praise to God is the fruit of thankfulness. As we give thanks to God, it bears fruit unto praise unto God. Tremendous. All throughout Scripture, the command is given and the expectation is clear. We are intended to be a people defined by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should inform our prayers. Thanksgiving should surround our actions. Thanksgiving should compel our intentions. Thanksgiving should reside within our hearts and manifest itself in our words and in our deeds. Thanksgiving. Say, but pastor, pastor, you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand my financial situation. You don't understand my family life. You don't realize who my boss is. You don't realize who my pastor is. Whatever those particular elements of your life are that you would say, you just don't understand, Pastor. If you understood who my boss was, you would not tell me to give thanks in my job. If you understood the schedule I keep, you would not be telling me to give thanks. If you understood the crazy pastor that I have to sit under and listen to every week, you would not be telling me 
to give thanks. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's not about your situation. You have no right to be unthankful. No right to be unthankful. On the authority of God's Word, that's what we're, we're seeing here. That you do not have the right, as a child of God, to be unthankful. We learned last week that thankfulness is a determination. See, it's not always going to happen naturally. We learned last week that thankfulness is a lifestyle. See, it's not something that you can just say, okay, it's going to be here. You have to build it into your life. And we learned last week that thanksgiving is giving credit where credit is due. None of those elements of thanksgiving are dependent upon the circumstances which you have. Not a one. None of those elements of thanksgiving require your happiness. And if you're unable to be thankful, that's not a reflection upon your circumstances. It's a reflection upon your view of God. Let me say that again. If you are unthankful, that is not a reflection of your circumstances. It is a reflection of your view of God. To be unthankful is to state God is not good and has not been good to me. And if you sit in this room having been redeemed from your sins and you are assured a home in heaven, then you have no right to say that. And as a matter of fact, it kind of sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? When you think of your heavenly home. So thankfulness is no less important in our lives than love, than gentleness, than mercy, than humility. Thanksgiving is essential to the spiritual man. So don't miss it. Don't miss Thanksgiving. So I'm at the hospital. I get my x-ray and the lady says, okay, take these down to your doctor. Everything looks okay. So now I'm really wondering, what's the deal with this EKG? How is it that... And I've always been kind of like that. I am, my, 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 my eyeglass prescription is plus 4.5 in each eye. Now that's farsightedness. But if you know, if you get into the plus or minus 4 range, you're pretty bad. Uh, reading glasses only go up to about plus 3.25, and that's if you really are, you know, really have trouble reading. And I'm a plus 4.5 in each eye. But if I take these glasses off, I can still read my Bible. I can still read my notes. I can still see you clearly. I can still read the clock. I'm farsighted, so of course I can read the clock in the back of the room. I can still see what time it is on my watch. And so when I was diagnosed with being grossly farsighted, I said, there's got to be something wrong. And so on paper, I look terrible. But in reality, somehow my eyes still work. It's the same thing. I have asthma. I have chronic asthma. I can go out and run five miles without using an inhaler, without a problem, and yet somehow, when I take the tests, I have asthma. And so it's been like this with me my entire life. And so here I am with the EKG, fi finding out that there's nothing wrong, but my EKG tests are wrong. And I thought, this is just another reason why my body is so weird. And I get into the doctor, and the doctor looks at him, and he says, I had to talk to a couple of my, my colleagues here, and they told me that um, sometimes a heart just sits a little bit lower in the chest. And so if you put all the EKG probes where they're supposed to be, where 90% of the population, you put the probes on them and everything's going to look okay, I'm going to start reading the impulses opposite because your heart is down lower and it's not reading them properly. So as it turns out, I called my mom on it because she's a nurse and uh, my brother-in-law is a neurologist and my 
sister is a nurse, and my other sister is a nurse, and all of my aunts are nurses. So they, they, they all, you know, I, I asked her to talk to her doctor, and she talked to one of her doctors, and they said, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually somewhat common. A person has an elongated torso, and so his heart sits a little bit lower. So I, I have a, a lower heart than most, I suppose. So that's the end of the story. The companions of thankfulness. Let's take a look at one more thing before we finish. Number two, the object of thankfulness. The object of your thankfulness. We've talked about its companions, all the things in our lives that would cause us to need to be thankful. Recognizing that if we're not thankful, we're missing something in our Christian life. What about the object? You know, last week during our introduction to Thanksgiving, in Psalm 100, we almost took for granted the fact that God was the one to whom our Thanksgiving is due. That our thanksgiving is to be directed toward God. But we must not miss it. And if we take it for granted, that's fine, as long as we know that it's the case. Let's not miss the fact that God is the object of our thanksgiving. While we might be thankful for things, we are not thankful to things. May I say that again? While we might be thankful for things, we are not thankful two things. I do not thank my government for this nation's freedoms. I thank God for this nation's freedoms. I do not thank my church, me particularly, do not thank necessarily my church for my salary. I thank God for my salary. I do not thank my realtor for the house I have. I thank God for the house I have. Am I thankful for my freedoms? Certainly. For my salary? Yes. Am I thankful for the house I live in? I am. But, see, thankfulness is not a vague or general term that's just directed towards nebulous stuff. We're not just thankful. We, we are thankful toward God. I'm preaching this series in November as preparation for the Thanksgiving holiday. All around this nation, there will be millions of people, both believers and unbelievers, secular and religious, who will take time to be thankful. Right? They will. The unbelievers will take time to recognize thanksgiving. They will be thankful. And they may go around the table and they'll say, I'm thankful for this, my car, my house, my job, my family, these sorts of things. But have you noticed that as the culture gets more secular, as the culture drifts farther away from God, Thanksgiving begins to take a smaller and smaller place in culture? Have you noticed that when the Halloween stuff gets put away, Thanksgiving stuff doesn't come out, does it? Christmas stuff comes out. Have you noticed that around the news, all the talk of Thanksgiving revolves around food, football, and Black Friday? Black Friday, from what I understand this year, from what I was looking at a catalog the other day, I think it was at Home Depot, I was at Home Depot, maybe it wasn't Home Depot, but one of the places said Black Friday starts at, on Thursday at 6 p.m. this year. Black Friday is bumping back every year deeper and deeper into Thanksgiving Day trying to get people into their store, trying to get people, and you know, people will have their meal, watch their football, then go line up for hours to get these deals. Thanksgiving is falling out of our culture. And let me tell you why. Because in the mind of someone who does not give God the glory that's due to his name, who are they supposed to be thankful for? 
So the guy down the street, he's sitting there ready for his Thanksgiving meal. He looks at all the food on the table and he says, my hard work got all this food on the table. And he looks at that car out in his parking lot and he says, man, my, my hard work got me that car. And he looks at the boat and the snowmobiles and he says, I remember having to work those extra hours, having to put in the overtime, double time, holidays last year so that I could afford those. And he looks at how his kids turned out and he says, you know, I did a pretty good job with them. And so Thanksgiving Day comes around and what's he supposed to do? Thank himself? Right? And so he's just nebulously thankful. And you know what? Eventually that doesn't matter anymore. He says, if I'm going to thank myself, I'll just go buy myself a new TV or something, right? That's how I can thank myself for my good job. I'll go to the Black Friday sales. Good job, me. I'm so thankful to myself for everything that I did in this past year to get all of the good stuff that I've got. I'm so glad I decided to get that insurance policy so that I could be healthy. I'm so glad that I could work all those hours so that I could have all this great stuff. I'm so glad my family turned out the way it did. I'm a good father. Go me. So what good is Thanksgiving if you're just thankful to yourself? And so as the culture loses the reality that God is the source of all things, Thanksgiving is going to fall away more and more, folks. And so we must not take for granted who it is that we're thankful to because if we take it for granted, then Thanksgiving will fall away from us as well. And not just the day, but the Spirit will fall away from us. So Paul tells us, look in verse 17 of Colossians 3. We're back in Colossians 3. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you're saying, whatever you're doing, do it in the name of Jesus Christ and do it with thanksgiving to Him. If we have any means to give thanks, it's because of the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And so we give thanks to God the Father through Christ the Son because everything that you have, all of your health, all of your joy, your children, your family, your house, everything that you have is the reflection of the good hand of God upon you. You suffer persecution, loss, temptation. We sang in the song, Thanks for the Victory talking about the difficult things. I've been talking about the good things. Let's talk about the tough stuff. Trials, persecutions. We memorized in 1 Peter that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so we see that all of these trials of our faith, all of the difficulties, all of the temptations, all of the loss and the suffering and these things that go on are an opportunity for us to thank God that in the midst of them we can praise His name, bring Him glory until the day that we don't have to deal with any of it anymore because we'll be home with Him. Won't that be a good day? Won't that be a good day when we don't have to deal with it anymore? We don't have to deal with people. We don't have to deal with jobs. We don't have to deal with provision. We don't have to deal with health. We'll be home in heaven with God. There will be no sun because Jesus Christ will be the light of heaven. There won't need to be a sun. Crystal River, the trees that bear a different fruit every month, streets of gold, 
all directed toward the praise of the one to whom it's due. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, be thankful this morning. In sickness or health, be thankful. In peace or in trial, be thankful. In plenty or in need, be thankful. In happiness or in sorrow, be thankful. Why? Why? Because this is the will of God concerning you.